Hey guys, it's Abel here with the Sustainable Cell Development Podcast. And in this episode, I'm coming at you with something kind of new that I wanted to do for a while. And that is a best of episode of sorts with some of the most important lessons from past podcast episodes. So frequently when I put out a new episode, I'm thinking to myself how awesome some of the concepts that my guests shared here are and how I wish that everyone would hear these bits and pieces. And then, as it often does, it just kind of gets lost in the ether. I mean, podcast is a long-form content type genre, and a lot of the tiny bits and pieces will not be heard as by as many people as I would like them to be heard. So I decided to do these episodes every once in a while where I pick some of the most important parts of some of my favorite episodes that I think will be informative or valuable to you and can offer some good insight. And so how frequently I will do these episodes really depend on the feedback and how you like these and how much of these you'd like to hear in the future. So have a listen and let me know at the end what you thought of the content. And if you liked it, let me know and I will make sure to do more of them. In this episode, I will share four bits of content from four really respected guests and some of my all-time favorite episodes. And the guests that I will feature will be Dr. Mike Isratel, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, Eric Helms and Menno Henselmans, who will discuss different topics. We will start with Dr. Isratel, who will discuss why the evolution-based reasoning and the paleo framework can be problematic when it comes to nutrition and fitness, because oftentimes you will hear things like, well, how could saturated fat be bad for you in excess amounts when it's been consumed all throughout evolution? And you'll hear a lot of similar adages which seem to make sense logically, but there are a couple of holes in this reasoning and a couple of caveats that it doesn't take into account. So Dr. Mike Isratel will shed some great light on these concepts. So with that, let's hear what Dr. Mike has to say on this. When paleo people you know, CrossFitters, when they eat um, huge amounts of saturated fat and they're in unbelievable shape, you're not too worried about those people. However, when someone's eating a really shit diet and they're eating a lot of saturated fats in addition to that and they're out of shape and they're saying, oh, it's a myth that saturated fats are bad for you. They're going to pay for that. They're going to pay for that for sure. <laughs> so uh, it's better to know all of that stuff so that you don't make these really ridiculous mistakes uh, rather than just go out of ignorance and say saturated fat's not that big of a deal. You know, um, I'm always of the opinion that it's good to give people all of the information on what affects their health. And if they choose to ignore some of the little minor stuff, great, but it's good to know. So I'm not going to ever say that all oh, saturated fats just aren't bad for you at all, unless that's what the literature ends up revealing, which is unlikely um, at this point, because there's so much literature on it already. Uh, you know, I'm never going to say it, it doesn't matter. I'll just say, you know, it doesn't matter that much, but if you're really interested in perfecting your health, it does matter. And, and, and just to end on a kind of a little bit of a sentimental note, you know, we got grandchildren running around and you want to see them from age three to age four. All of a sudden you look back at all that bacon and shit you ate and you're like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe six months is really valuable, you know, to a person on their deathbed, six minutes they would give all of their money for. So is it good to know maybe that there's a trade-off? Totally. Now, do you want to make it? Maybe not because someone could be on their deathbed and be like, okay, if you never ate bacon, you'd be another year of life. They'd be like, yeah, but it's a year I would use eating bacon anyway. I fucking lived a good life. I love bacon. I love saturated fats. It's awesome. I love cheeseburgers and peace. I'm out. See you in the next world. Um, that's totally cool. As long as they know what they're doing, that, that, that's fine. 
Yeah, yeah, and 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 I guess also on a evolutionary medicine kind of framework, uh, because many of many times the argument is that well, it doesn't make logically any sense that some substance that had been present all throughout human evolution could be harmful. But what that argument doesn't account for is that it hasn't been available throughout evolution in unlimited amounts, which is what we're talking about here. So. Oh, oh boy, that argument doesn't account for all kinds of stuff other than that. You're completely correct in that it doesn't account for unlimited amounts. What also doesn't account for is that considering that longevity is even a very high selective pressure in our evolutionary environment. When the average age of death was 30, can we really think that something that kills you when you're 65 would even be selected against? Do you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, you know, that's that's a crazy thought. You know, uh, there's a variety of things about our bodies that are not designed for longevity at all. The very things. So, for example, a high intake of calories, a high intake of saturated fats makes you resistant to disease. It makes you bigger. It makes you stronger. It makes you more energetic. It makes you be able to hurt people better and have sex with people better and survive up until age 30, you know, when you're the alpha male and you stabbed everyone else in the face and you've gotten laid a ton, you've left a ton of ancestors as progeny. And then finally you break your toe on accident and someone sneaks up on you and guts you like a fish because they want all your women. That's what evolutionary ancestral environment looks like. Cheeseburgers are an enhancer in that environment. The more of you can have, the better because there's very huge, huge shortage of calories and Saturated fats are hugely in brain development and in hormones and everything that you need. So they're good for you in that environment. We did not involve in an environment unless some kind of weird agrarian culture where we all rode bicycles and there were solar panels everywhere and we lived to 100. <laughs> I don't, that, no. just wasn't a, that wasn't a thing. So you know, if, if something like a cheeseburger could make you a baller until you were 35 and then after age 50, it started to exact some health effects, that would be hugely selected for during our ancestral environment because no, almost no one made it to age 60. You know what I mean? So, so the idea that we evolved for health in the long term is already flawed. And it's not just um, unsupported, it's actually backwards supported, right? We, we know for a fact that much of human evolution uh, was designed for age under 30, under 35. And after that, your body kind of just like, Meh. There's not much purpose for anything that happens because you probably should be dead, <laughs> right? So when they say like, oh, you know, Alzheimer's, like, you know, how come that error occurs where Alzheimer's occurs? Well, an Alzheimer's usually doesn't develop until your 60s. Uh, so the number of people in our ancestral environment that actually lived long enough to have Alzheimer's is so small that it's kind of irrelevant for evolution. You know what I mean? Like, how come there's no evolutionary mechanism against Alzheimer's? Because you already accomplished everything that's evolutionary relevant. By the time you're 60, you're probably dead, right? Only now are we seeing the people living past 60, and Alzheimer's is probably an example of just the brain not being designed to be that old. That's it, you know? So, and there's a bunch of other stuff like that. So now that we are in that environment, we can't really look to evolution to answer questions about what we should be eating. We should look to direct scientific evidence to look what you'd be eating. Does that make sense? So we should say, okay, given what we know about human condition now, what foods eaten now are going to give us the results we want now? And people say, but in ancestral times, well, that's not ancestral times. The goal isn't to be a warlike monster or a super reproducing machine up until age 35 and then get killed by somebody or have a toothache that turns into a, an infection that kills you within three days, right? That's ancestral environment, not very instructive for the modern world as far as longevity for sure is concerned and, and pretty much as far as health is concerned either. 
Yeah, man, that, that's a brilliant point because usually the, the argument is that you look at the paleo framework uh, because that's what we did in, all throughout evolution and we should abandon all the modern stuff. But basically the whole concept of living very long is already a modern construct. So <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. That is exactly true. And, and it also... Uh, there's some fallacious reasoning, and there's a little bit of the naturalistic fallacy, a little bit of what's, what's called the uh, in sociology the noble savage myth, that you know back in the day things were good. The Paleolithic sucked; it sucked in almost every conceivable way. People were worse off in almost every single measurable way, and the reason they weren't worse off was because of really nasty other things. Why were there almost no fat people back then? Because they were fucking starving all the damn time. You know, there's no fat people in Africa either, but you don't exactly try to move there to like be like, yeah, this is a great life. It sucks that people are trying to leave, right? So it's one of the situations where, you know, the sort of mystification, idealization of ancestral times is just radically off base to begin with. Um, almost everything about the modern world is better, and we had we had better understand what kind of dietary practices are more conducive to health. Some of them will, for some reason or another, correlate to ancestral practices, but some of them won't. Um, and it's funny because if you actually ask cavemen what they want, if you gave cavemen a sample of foods, they would only pick fast food. Fast food is universally accepted as the best possible food. Why? Because it has the most saturated fats, the most sugars, the most calorie density, because that's what was most lacking in our Paleolithic environment. <laughs> that's what people wanted the most because it was damn near not around. As Paleolithic, as, as you know, we had Paleolithic ancestors, most of our brain still functions like that. That's one of the big reasons why we're so fat. And so, so uh, because we're so lazy, because movement isn't something you want to do. Ancestral humans aren't naturally hard workers. You would die if you were naturally hard worker because you would expend so much energy doing pointless activities. Um, is supposed to just want to eat junk food as much of it as possible because it brings as many calories as, as, as you can stuff in because you know starvation is so so uh, kind of uh, always around and then the other thing is you want to be as lazy as possible because only when you need to move to survive should you be moving otherwise you should be conserving calories um, so the, the real paleo individuals be the fattest, laziest one of all of us. <laughs> so, you know, modernity brings with it its own challenges, but also very good things. It's best to evaluate it on a current scientific level of what is it about our bodies that's a good idea for us to eat? How should we be physically active? Let's just stick to that. And whatever happened in the past, very, very different conditions and not optimized for our health and wellness back then. All right. I uh, hope you enjoy this clip from Dr. Isratel. And with that, let's jump into a different clip now with Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, whom I interviewed about a year ago and talked about the ketogenic diet and its implications in various settings. And I asked him the question that seems to be neglected and overlooked quite often amongst people who advocate the ketogenic diet, which is the role of calorie intake and the importance of how much you eat and how important it is to maintain a healthy body weight. And the reason I asked him this is because the ketogenic diet has a lot of health benefits in terms of reducing inflammation, improving cognition, and things like that. And some people almost go far as to say that it is fine if you overeat, and it's fine if you're overweight, and you shouldn't care about fat loss and body composition because the ketogenic diet is just so healthy for you. And so I wanted to get the take of one of the biggest experts in this field on this topic. And so with that, let's hear what Dr. Dominic D'Agostino has to say. 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I think, you know, as I mentioned, I think the ketogenic diet helps us auto-regulate our calories to match our energy needs. So you're not going, it's very difficult. I'll put it this way. It's very difficult to gain weight on a ketogenic diet. And I, I, I get a lot of feedback from young guys who know the benefits of the ketogenic diet for promoting weight loss, for getting lean, you know, from if the guys that work out. And when they try to gain, you know, a lot of muscle as fast as possible on the ketogenic diet, they try to overeat the ketogenic mm-hmm. diet. And at first they're able to do it and then they just become, they lose their appetite. They almost get mm-hmm. nauseous by all the fat and everything. And I feel that, you know, a surplus amount of calories on a ketogenic diet is just as bad, maybe even worse than surplus amount of calories on a high carbohydrate diet because mm-hmm. it's going to elevate blood levels of fats. Whenever you're, you know, exceeding the amount of calories that you need, you're going to be, you know, elevating your blood levels of fats. And that could be causing, that could eventually cause, you know, fatty liver, uh, the fats get oxidized and they could do damage but you're just less likely to eat surplus amount of calories if your diet has a macronutrient ratio that's similar to a ketogenic diet. It just becomes very difficult to, to overeat. Uh, but I do think, and Thomas Seyfried really believes that the ketogenic diet could promote even cancer growth if it's consumed in excess amounts. Uh, and he, he actually demonstrated that in his animal model of brain tumor. Uh, but it's, it's important to realize that the the ketogenic diet that he was administering, I, I think it was the keto cow supplement that had hydrogenated fats. It also may have had some sweeteners in it, like uh, aspartame or, or other artificial sweeteners, which caused the mice to eat excess amounts. So mm-hmm. they tend to, he, he gave it and let the mice eat ad libitum. And I think that the composition of the diet uh, from the things that I mentioned previously, the hydrogenated fats, the sweeteners, caused the mice to eat more than they otherwise would. And he saw rapid tumor growth in an unrestricted ketogenic diet. So we use, we formulated a ketogenic diet that didn't have artificial sweeteners in it. And, uh, and, it, and it had a healthy complement of fat. It had like medium chain fats and some, you know, had flaxseed oil, combination of saturated, medium and monounsaturated. And when we we did this in three studies we've published so far, and when we ad, we gave the diet, you know, ad libitum, we actually saw uh, it caused pretty dramatic reduction in in tumor growth and metastasis, and it also increased survival significantly. And so I think it matters what kind of what kind of diet you formulate. Most of the ketogenic diet practitioners out there and clinicians. They're very good, you know, some of them are very good neurologists and, and they're very good at what they do, um, but they don't have an appreciation for the subtleties of the diet. And when it comes to formulating the, you know, the correct ratio of fats, to protein and, and the various, you know, diet formulations, I think would be optimal. And that's where it really takes the skill of a trained nutritionist. Uh, Beth Zupat-Kania, who works for the Charlie Foundation, which is a foundation in the United States that promotes the use of the ketogenic diet. Miriam Kalamian, who is a a dietitian that does a lot of work with uh, cancer patients, are sort of like my go-to dietitians 
when people come to me and they say, well, can you formulate a ketogenic diet? I'll connect them to, to various ketogenic diet savvy dietitians who know how to formulate the diet precisely to get a particular benefit from it. So as ketogenic diet researchers, it's really important for us to, uh, to all be using sort of a similar version of the ketogenic diet. All right, hope you enjoyed this other clip from Dr. D'Agostino. And so with that, let's hear another clip from another highly uh, respected guest, Menno Henselmans, a guy who is so often featured on my YouTube channel and my podcast in various iterations. And I asked him about the concept of building muscle and losing fat at the same time. I think he made a big push in the industry towards making it an accepted notion that body recomposition and gaining muscle in a caloric deficit is indeed possible. And now I asked him to describe just what is the role really of energy balance when it comes to building muscle. In other words, how important it is to eat a caloric surplus when you want to gain muscle. And after that, we transitioned briefly into nutrient timing, and he shared his views on the importance of making use of the so-called anabolic window and spoiler alert, it will probably spark a lot of disagreement, which is fine. That's why we're here. So let's go ahead and hear from Menno. Two sides of this. One end of the spectrum goes says, that, yo, no problem. You can recomp and gain all the muscle you can in deficit. And the other side kind of says like, well, if you're a newbie or you're very overweight or you're new to proper training, then maybe you can. Um, could you just, for the listeners, outline just how important is the whole concept of energy balance for muscle growth specifically? Right. Um, so the, the impact of energy balance on muscle growth, um, it exists for sure. And it's a dose response basically. So um, if you, the difference between a 20% deficit and being at maintenance is quite significant. But then if you go into a 5 percent surplus, you get additional benefit. But if you then go, say, into a 50% surplus, then you're getting into the level where at some point all of the excess energy that you're consuming is just going to pile on as fat tissue because you've, you've maxed out your rate of muscle growth, basically. Now, theoretically, maybe uh, there's always you know, some incremental return, but it, at some point in practice, it's just so small and not worth the fat gain anymore. Uh, but this impact, this general effect on energy balance, on protein balance, and ultimately muscle growth is far smaller than many people think. And uh, in fact, there are lots of studies that um, do not find any difference in the rates of muscle growth, even though uh, they study diets with a different energy content. And we have a few um, sort of direct studies on this, uh, especially Scandinavian literature uh, that actually looked at this directly on the rate of muscle growth as a function of energy balance. But we also see this a lot in uh, research on protein intake that is often not controlled for energy. So there, for example, we see that um, groups that consume a lot more protein and energy do not actually gain more muscle mass, even though they consume both more protein and more energy than the other groups. So it's uh, definitely a highly understated um, an overstated relationship, basically. So not, you not only can gain muscle mass when you're in energy deficit, the difference between how much muscle you can gain uh, versus when you are in energy surplus is actually not that large, but it does exist. Right. So um, actually, 
Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm in a big dilemma which question to ask first. But first, um, you mentioned that you've had a, like an eight-month-long bulk and you tracked your body composition very meticulously. And by the end of eight months, you concluded that you gained one pound of muscle. Do you think you could have gained that one pound of muscle given the elite training advancement that you are at in, a, let's say, a 5% deficit? A good question. Could I have also gained that pound of muscle without bulking? Um, I think not. In fact, um, this is largely anecdotal because, as I said, the research doesn't really support this at all. But uh, anecdotally, I think you come at a certain point when you are really advanced and you are bordering uh, on touching your genetic limitations in terms of muscle mass, that you get to the point where uh, the body simply won't uh, grow anymore at all, basically, if you are not in energy surplus. And it's basically... Um, where you get into, people always say like the fine tuning is the final 10% and you hear Pareto rules, you know, about people say, uh, you get your protein in, you do strength training, that's 80% of your results. Anything else you do is the remaining 20%. May well be true for a novice level lifter, but um, what a lot of people experience is that they simply stop growing at all. And I've been stuck, if I look at my own progression over the, what is it, 12 years or something I've been training, then, there are many periods where evidently I did not grow at all. And I was getting my protein in. I was training hard. You know, my diet was composed of whole foods. I had the very basics, right? But there was just no further growth. So I think you get into this point where either any growth that you obtain is lost during your weight loss periods or um, you are simply not growing anymore at all. So you're actually looking at threshold effects and not... Uh, diminishing returns effects. Yeah. I, okay. I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up because in, on, in your PT course, one thing that we learned about extensively is how, as you get more advanced as a trainee, uh, nutrient timing and making use of the anabolic window, as they call it, it becomes increasingly important. Now, my question to you would be, do you think it would be a fair statement to make that for an advanced lifter like yourself, or even less advanced, um, getting the workout nutrition right could be just as important or even slightly more important than being in an energy surplus across the weeks for muscle growth? For sure. Actually, there's a study by, I think it's Holmi et al., 2005, 2016, or 2015 or 16, um, I think it's 15, that directly at groups that made this comparison possible. And they found that the protein timing was actually the more determining factor of muscle growth than total energy intake. Um, so I think absolutely this is the case. And I mean, if you think about it logically, um, you think, say you have two trainees and one of them makes sure that this like the traditional bro gets in his protein shakes, the post-workout shake, pre-workout shake, whatever, even if it's not fully science-based, um, has six meals a day and only eats white rice, broccoli, chicken. So he's basically cutting nonstop or at best he's at maintenance. And the other trainee, uh, consumes a lot more energy by bulking, but he trains first thing in the morning and consumes all of the energy in one meal at night, at dinner. I think intuitively almost everyone would agree that the person with the one meal at dinner and training in the morning is not going to be as successful as uh, the other. The audio here cut out, but he said that the person eating one meal a day will not be as successful than the other person having nutrient timing better dialed in and eating overall less energy. Energy. 
Right, right. Uh, and, and I'm glad you uh, brought up a hypothetical study scenario because that's just what I wanted to ask. Like, let's say we have two groups of advanced trainees, same body fat percentage, everything is the same, but one is in a 5% surplus and the other one is a 5% deficit. But the 5% deficit group has the workout nutrition dialed in and the other one has a completely suboptimal uh, nutrient timing, let's say, you know, very suboptimally spaced out, which, so do you think that the workout nutrition uh, group would gain more muscle? Yeah, in general, yes. Obviously, it depends on the specifics, you know, because if you're looking at one group that is consuming um, a whole meal two hours before their workout and another whole meal one hour after, and the nutrient timing group also has a shake in that period, then probably you're not going to find major differences, if any, because the whole uh, period is already covered uh, with hyperamino acidemia, um, so the presence of sufficient amino acids in the blood. So then, you know, there is no more additional effect. But if you're looking at like a more extreme scenario, like what I was talking about, then absolutely. All right, guys. And with that, let's hear the last clip for today from the one and only Eric Helms, with whom I did one of my first ever interviews, and it's one of my all-time favorites. And we discussed a whole bunch of topics here. And in this particular clip, we will talk about Eric's first bodybuilding season and his experience with the so-called post-contest binge, where bodybuilders tend to fall off the wagon quite badly if they're not careful. And he didn't really have a solid plan exiting the diet and exiting the contest prep. And he experienced some pretty horrendous weight gain and recurring binge episodes. So he tells us how he dealt with this situation and what it took him to actually overcome it and how long it took him to actually get on the right path again. So let's hear this clip from Eric. I think it will be very insightful for a lot of you. So would you would you mind telling that story? Like, how, how did that happen? You know, it happens to most bodybuilders, I would say, their first season, or, or most stage physique competitors, right? Um, I had a very meticulous plan for how I was going to actually die down for the show. Uh, to my credit, I, I did pretty good for a first season. I didn't have a, a great physique at the time. I'd only been training for two, three years. Um, and I didn't get completely shredded, but I definitely showed up looking like I, I belonged on stage. And it took me from uh, January to May. So I dieted January, February, March, April. I dieted five months, which at that time, you know, 2007, when uh, there wasn't the same kind of push for uh, a more intelligent approach to it, that was considered a very long prep. Uh, now it's kind of like when I, when I hire someone five months, I'm like, oh, you better be really lean to start. You know, it's not very long, um, believe it or not. Um, but anyway, so I had a plan to get there. My plan to get out was, well, I've always been fine with it. I'm naturally a skinny kid. I've never had, like, I don't even know how to get fat. Uh, like, so whatever, my, my plan is going to be a list of restaurants, you know? Um, but I didn't, I have any way to know the extreme drive for overconsumption of food. Um, and that, that, that swing back effect where you can actually overshoot your fat levels um the amount of of stress that i'd be under trying to diet down uh, a lot of it unneeded by the way i was approaching things i was doing a lot of wacky stuff like i wouldn't combine fats and carbs sometimes and i had a food list of about maybe eight foods that i would eat and i was eating maybe six or seven meals a day um 
and all that on top of pretty hectic schedule and, and, and life in general. Um, and I was a wreck by the time I got off stage and it just turned into basically a, uh, recurring binge episodes. And I would try to then have low days to try to, you know, make up for the binge day. And eventually I just gave into it. I was like, I'm, it's more stressful for me to try to manage the fact that I'm binging all the time. I'm just going to, just going to eat until I'm not, not hungry anymore. Unfortunately, uh, eating until I wasn't hungry anymore meant that two months later I'd put on 48 pounds. And I looked up one day and I was like, I competed at 178 pounds and now I'm 226. Like I, I couldn't believe it. Um, I had never been 226 pounds in my life. Uh, the heaviest I'd, I think I'd ever been was, uh, maybe 205, 210. So I, I managed to put 15, 20 pounds on more than when I started my diet just five months prior. So in two months after the diet was over. So people had heard who I hadn't seen in a while, you know, I'm meeting up with, you know, friends from high school and, and they're like, Oh, I heard you did a show two months ago. And they look at me like, did you really do a show two months ago? <laughs> you know, like, cause I, I looked like, um, maybe a alignment in, in American football rather than someone who just did a show, uh, only, only in May and it was July. So, you know, I run into a lot of people who, who for a large portion of their life before they even got uh, interested in competitive bodybuilding have been very focused on, uh, looking lean and they're always trying to stay lean and, and, and they go through these kind of periods and they look up and they contact me because maybe four years out of their five years of training, they've been in a cutting state or trying to maintain a very low body fat. Uh, that I see a lot. Um, but uh, other people who get into bodybuilding, they have been trying to gain weight for, forever, 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 and they don't necessarily have that background. So it's a huge surprise uh, when, they, when, they, when they deal with that. And it's not necessarily losing my condition or putting on fat that really freaked me out um, because I never really was concerned about my body image that much. I got into lifting weights um, at a, at a, from an odd kind of place. You know, it wasn't necessarily like, I'm not happy with my body. I need to change it. It was more like, I'm not happy with my life. I need to do something. And I just fell in love with it. Um, so, so for me, it, it, it was, it was much more the mental side of it. The fact that for the first time in my life, I couldn't control what I wanted to eat. I did not want to binge. I did. I, I was clearly doing something I did not like, and I just felt completely out of control. And you can imagine for someone who is drawn to control to do a bodybuilding show, the stress of feeling like you can't control something that you can control for five months. Like I, I would, would, you know, I weighed out my peanut butter at the gram and now I can't only eat two slices of pizza. I have to eat the whole pizza. Like that made me feel weak. That made me feel like I was a fraud bodybuilder. It made me feel like there was something wrong with me. Uh, like I had a eating disorder and I probably technically did for a little while there. Um, so the, the emotional state was more related to like, what the hell's wrong with me? I feel like I'm crazy. Um, and just, uh, just lack of control. And I, I think that that was the big one. It really just felt like I, I didn't get to choose where my life was going. And, uh, and that, that was not a comfortable feeling for me at all. Um, one of the things that helped me get out of it was actually reading about the Minnesota semi-starvation study. And the, which is for those who don't know, in, in the forties, uh, Ansel Keys did a study, a famous researcher, uh, on how to get people who had uh, starved. So like we're talking POW and even Holocaust survivors uh, back to a healthy body weight. So putting a bunch of men on half of the calories they needed to maintain weight for six months straight in a controlled condition. So they were basically locked up so they couldn't do it. It's not the kind of thing that would pass an ethics board today. Um, but it, it's one of the, the pivotal pieces of research that has informed us about 
uh, what happened to people's diet. And there was some wacky stuff that happened. Like some people became professional chefs after the study was over. Uh, one guy apparently, I think, cut off his finger. I could be misquoting at a certain point in the study. And he, that's how he got out of it. Um, there are people who broke out of the controlled conditions they're in and, and binged at like a, basically a commissary kind of thing. Um, everyone was showing signs of at the time, the way they diagnosed, because there's different diagnostic criteria for eating disorders. So everyone at the time could have been diagnosed for um, anorexia. I don't know if that's still the case based on the current diagnostic criteria, but it showed that some of the things that we see as a eating disorder aren't just the behavior, they're the way you get to physiologically. And, and all of a sudden it started to make sense. I was like, yeah, I, I'm more focused on food than anything else in my life. Like I'll be talking to my wife and then I'm like, yeah, and I'm thinking, I have no idea what you just said because I'm thinking about lunch. I know it's coming up, you know. <laughs> so the the food focus and the the lack of control really started to make sense when I read about someone, this group of guys going through the exact same thing I did, a six-month period or almost six months in my case of getting down to as lean as your body will let you get uh, and then, you know, seeing what happens, you know, and, and I saw the same thing they did. Uh, and I, I just happened to, to, uh, you know, to have the benefit of a modern society where I could look it up on Wikipedia and, and feel a little less crazy, which was actually extremely helpful. And I was able to get my, my proverbial shit together after that. Yeah. Um, obviously this made you a, a better coach. Um, but do you think it changed your relationship to, to food and, you know, things like that? Yes. And I would say it took me until maybe three years ago before I got back to what I would say would be a, a, a naturally healthy relationship with food. And I'll explain what I mean by kind of telling a story. So uh, I started dieting for that show in January 2007. That's when I started tracking nutrients, weighing foods, tracking my macros for the first time. I didn't actually stop tracking my macros until 2012. So that was five years of, of weighing and tracking food. So it doesn't mean I would have, it doesn't mean that, that I, I didn't go out to eat with my wife or eat out on holidays or take days off tracking the food um, or revert from macros to just calories or maybe make a 48-hour window where I could hit it. But I was always tracking. And when I could, I would weigh it out. Um, and uh, in 2012, I kind of realized, you know, I'm going to be moving to a new country. I'm not going to have access. And I had, had a discussion with my wife, and she was like, you know, you're, you're great about doing it in a way that doesn't affect me. But just the fact that you're doing it, to be honest, I don't think it's necessary. And it's kind of weird. And I went, you know, it is kind of weird. I, that is, you know, I, I, it's fine for me. I'm making it happen. But, but like, you know, Berto, Jeff, Brad, you know, my, my, my colleagues, they're like, you know, we don't track macros to that degree in the off season. You know, we, we keep it in check, you know, but do you, do you really think you need to weigh out your oats every morning? That kind of thing. Like, do you not know what a bowl of oats should look like? You know? Um, <laughs> so now I saw, so I got to New Zealand. I was like, you know, do I really need to do this? You know, I, I, I've heard that the body actually has a way to regulate body weight. I heard it's called like hunger and satiety. Wouldn't it be nice if I can actually start to use those signals again? So for the last three years, I have just been eating as I want and just uh, basically keeping mindful of the things that I habitually don't keep in place in the off season, which is under eating because uh, I get to a certain point and I just lose my hunger. Like right now, I'm maintaining about uh, 201, 202, reasonably lean. But th if I try to get any heavier than that uh, or even try to maintain that, I just kind of basically what will happen is I'll end up just cyclically accidentally cutting. 
because I, I lose my hunger signals. So I have to ensure that I eat enough and I have to ensure that I get enough protein in. So I track a few things. And to be honest, if you track for five years, you can't not know where your calories and macros are roughly. Like I can always tell you about where I'm at for the day. And sometimes I'll check it. Um, and, and I'm always right. Like, for example, I'll give you two examples to show you what five years of macro tracking does to your ability to kind of see the zeros and ones in the matrix kind of thing. Um, a buddy of mine had uh, a yam on his desk and I said, Hey, I think that's, or it's called a Kumra here. I said, I think that's 63 grams. And he was like, what? I was like, I bet you that that's about 63 grams. And he was like, shut up. He put it on the scale and it was 62 grams. So, <laughs> and then, and then he did, I did it, I did it again just to show that it wasn't like a, uh, like a, a magic trick, like the, just a fake thing. It was, a, it was just, it wasn't a fluke. Um, and then also another example would be, I did a, uh, I participated in a study for, a 16 week diet tracking study. We used my fitness pal and tracked and um, they started with a four week baseline period. And the, the researcher who I was working with um, was like, so like, we're just going to track your baseline calories and you'll come in and then we'll go from there. And I said, you know, I think I'm probably taking in about 27, 2800 calories on average. And I bet I get about two grams per kg of protein. And he said, okay, well, we still got to track. And I said, okay, sure. So at the end of the four weeks, it comes back. Average calories are 2741. My protein intake is <laughs> is 174, which is just barely under, I was at 90 kg. So was, I was, so I, I can't not know where I'm at, but I'm not chucking everything on the scale. I eat anywhere between two to four meals a day. I eat out as much as I want. So I'm actually using the skills I learned rather than let them being kind of like a crutch or training wheels that I just don't need anymore. And that is something that I actually could encourage my athletes to do in the off season is get down to tracking the minimal amount of variables to be consistent rather than all of the variables, which is more appropriate just for contest prep, you know? Yeah. It's, it's two quick points I want to make off of that is, is one of them is I think if, um, if we're, we're just, when we're talking about flexible dieting, uh, I guess that's all cool and fine. But I think for a lot of people, the more you include these quote unquote junk foods, the more important, the more accurate you have to be with your measuring because the less you can rely on your natural satiety signals. Right. That's a great point. I mean, the foods that we consider quote unquote junk, uh, they are a component, not all of the obesity epidemic because they increase satiety more than they blunt it by eating it. So people tend to overeat and they're packed with calories, you know, and you have a really, really high fat, and high sugar item, the average person, even with some nutritional knowledge, will guess and they'll be like, oh, yeah, it's probably 200. They're like, no, that's that's a 600 calorie cookie. And you're like, what? You know, so it, it makes you more likely to be off and you can't trust your natural signals as much. So you're 100% right. All right, guys. So that was all the clips from Dr. Mike Isratel, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, Eric Helms, and Menno Henselmans. I hope you enjoyed this and please let me know what you thought of this. Just comment or reach out to me in whatever way you prefer and let me know what you thought of all of this and what you liked, what you didn't like, maybe what kind of content or topics you'd like me to include when I do an episode like this again. And if you enjoy my podcast as a whole, then please leave a rating on iTunes and you can follow me on SoundCloud as well. If you just search for the Sustainable Cell Development Podcast, you can find me on both platforms. And if you watch this on YouTube, subscribe to receive content like this uh, once it comes out. And you can also check out my blog where I put up every blog post, every YouTube video, and every new podcast episode. And it is 
sosdvc.com. It is susdvc.com. It's actually meant to stand for sustainable self-development-center.com, but I just made an abbreviation. So thank you guys for your attention. Thanks for hanging around until now and see you next time.